Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. It's about recognizing that our lives are a product of the choices that we make, and the ripple effects of those choices impact our families, our communities, and the world. So let's choose wisely. If it helps to evolve us as individuals, then we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because, after all, we are always evolving, and in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I'm here today with Pat O'Connor, who is one of the board members of the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. And I invited you here to do this podcast interview because I know for me, I'm really fascinated by sustainable living and sustainable communities because I kind of feel like that's where we're headed, where people come together and there's this coordinated community effort to just make life simpler and easier and more efficient and just work better. Because I think people are kind of outgrowing the idea that everybody's alone and they're McMansions and they're, they're isolated in their houses and everyone's working so hard to maintain everything. And so I think people are feeling a little bit exhausted by the effort of keeping it all going. I think community living is a really smart way to go. And I know so many people that are interested and curious about what that's like don't necessarily have any experience with it. So that's why I wanted to interview you because having been to the farm, it's really an amazing place. I guess what I wanna find out or what, first of all, is the farm, do you know if the farm is the oldest or the largest sustainable community in the United States? I don't know if it currently is the largest. At one point, it was 1,700 people lived there, but that was quite a number of years ago. And it was kind of established under a different format in the beginning than it is now. So it's evolved. It, it has like evolved. Like everything else. <laughs> and it changes even today. It may be a slow roll change, but it does change. And uh, from what we first established to what it is now is subtle, but is different. Okay. In some cases, way different. Great. I want to get into that. Okay. Uh, what I want to ask first, so what is your relationship to the farm? What's your connection to the farm? Well, my connection to the farm is my personal story is I had a group of like-minded friends living in Florida. And we pooled our money together, several couples, and went off looking, more or less, looking to buy a farm. And we eventually did buy a farm in uh, Tennessee. Our communal farm was a little bit different at the time. The original farm had more or less a leader or kind of guru kind of guy, which I viewed as the town preacher. Whereas our original my original community was uh, open-ended. You could be a Buddhist or a Catholic or uh, any denomination, but one of the parallel things that 
It was nonviolent. The original farm and one of the tenants of the farm to this day is nonviolent. If you hit somebody or even verbally abuse somebody, you can get called on the carpet mm. and then eventually asked to leave. Another tenant is there was no weapons. You couldn't come to the farm with a gun and can't come there to this day. And if it's discovered that you have to go have a gun or a deadly weapon, you must leave. You, mm. So you cannot have weapons. And the thing that one of the things that glue us together is nonviolence. And everybody is in agreement. Everyone's coming together with an agreement that this is how we're choosing to live. This is the community that we're creating. And originally, both farms, again, were parallel in that we were all vegetarians. And one of the things that has evolved over the years is we're not vegetarians anymore. But I would say 50% of the people are, and you could have your choice to eat whatever diet you want. Mm. So that's one thing that has changed. And then the orig my original farm was called the Spring Hollow Farm, and it was began about the same time as the original farm. But the farm, maybe I should give you a little background. Mm -hmm, please. Stephen Gaskin was more or less the leader, the spiritual leader, and uh, it started in California. And there's a book called Monday Night Class, and he spoke about communal living, how to coexist in nonviolence, and was originally a philosophy teacher and uh, started with a small group of people meeting in parks and different places in San Francisco during the hippie days. Mm -hmm. So this was back in the 60s, 70s? Early 70s. Early 70s. Very early, maybe 70, 71. Mm -hmm. And it started to have such a crowd, hundreds and then even a few thousand people started gathering every Monday night to hear to speak and discuss the direction of politics, the direction of our lives, any topic that, you know, had to do with... Anything that was relevant to... That was relevant yeah. outside of more or less the norm. Right, outside of the mainstream, uh, the mainstream way of thinking. America. <laughs> nice. So they decided it was so... That group was so successful, they decided to take a tour around the country and set up different college campuses and different places to, to speak uh, to people who were like-minded or interested. And, and that was a caravan. That was the caravan. And everybody got school buses and traveled in school buses and stayed at parks and different places, campuses, and they were on the road more months. So that was so successful when they got back to San Francisco, they didn't want to stop the tour. They didn't want to stop the caravan. So they got back on their buses, pooled all their money and all their resources and drove to Tennessee and eventually bought the farm as it's known today. And how many, how many people were in that caravan and how many vehicles? I don't know the actual count, but it could have been more than 30. Okay. And, uh, you know, they had breakdowns along the way, and they were already communal living right. out of these school buses, eating together, 
group therapy kind of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't therapy, it was group lifestyle. So they bought the farm and they settled in there and the farm was originally 1,700 acres of Tennessee backwoods. And it has grown over the years to be now it's 4,000 acres. It's interesting that everything you see on the farm, everything that you experience on the farm, the roads, the buildings, everything we brought there one way or another. None of that existed. None of it existed. It was backwoods land with a dirt road down the middle and that was it. And there were doctors and lawyers and people with college educations and we were just starting families. And my family went to the farm to have our children because one of the main streams of the farm is spiritual midwifery. And you could have your child born there, delivered by the midwives in a natural setting. And that's today, that's still one of the main things that the ladies do, the midwives, and they're world-renowned. And thousands of babies from all over the world have been born there. People come from Europe, Australia, and over the years, just everywhere you could imagine to have their children born there and experience communal living. You know, it's interesting because I was talking to somebody and telling her that I was going to be interviewing you, and I was telling her about the farm in, in Tennessee, and I gave her just a little bit of information, and she said, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. That's where Ina Mae Gaskin is from, right? And, That's and correct. And I said, yes, because she's connected to the whole midwifery community. Ina Mae Gaskin was the head midwife, and her husband Stephen was more or less the spiritual leader. And one of Stephen's spiritual tenets was to teach you how to make good decisions yourself. Mm. And uh, people would say to me, like, Stephen said this or Stephen said that. And I would say, yeah, but Stephen's not here. Right. <laughs> We're the ones who are going to figure this out. You right. Know? And that's the point. Like, and he that wanted was the you point. to be able to think for yourself and make smart choices. And that was one of his main driving points for me. Yeah. So after about two or three years of traveling back and forth, having my children born there, we sold the Spring Hollow Farm and more or less joined the farm. And the farm continued to grow and was total commune. And at one point, 1,750 people lived there. Wow. And uh, it had a lot of good points. It also had some weaknesses, which became financial weaknesses. It was hard to garnish enough money to pay for everything, medical, clothes, schools, and things like that. So uh, there was a crisis after 10 or 12 years, and the people like myself, after we moved there, Worked in a we started a construction company and had a hundred employees, and all the money earned went to one communal bank and was distributed accordingly. All the food at the store was free. When the doctors came to your house, it was free. The water system was free, and all of these things we built and brought there. Mm. So uh, 
it was difficult financially and often we started at a poverty level and built it up from there. So there's a point in time called the changeover and it's famous time at the history where we stopped being communal and everybody had to pay dues and the dues for an adult was $100 a month and that covered your water bill, security bill, road bill, public building construction, uh, the welcome center, uh, lots of things were funded from your dues. Think of it like a condo dues. Right. Okay. You know, but we built a town from the dues. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is now, 40-something years later, everybody pays the dues. And that's we generate our budget. And, you know, uh, that's how the board of directors runs. And they formulate the budget and... We have quarterly meetings with the community to discuss various topics. And then the board makes decisions. But I must say, now I'm talking about the politics of the farm, uh -huh. current politics of the farm. So if you disagreed, if any individual that was a member disagreed with the ruling of the board, there was, there was this avenue of complaint and that is to file a petition. So if you think a decision that was made, any member could write a petition, get 15% of the members to sign it, and by the bylaws, the farm is required to call a special meeting for discussion, maybe two or three meetings, and then a vote. And your petition has to end in a question. I would like to see this happen and then people vote yes or no. So if the majority, 51% of the people vote yes, that overrules the board. Ah. So, uh, and this evolved over time, right? Like it's evolved it's over time. It's probably one of those things where this came together organically and over time things had to be figured out to work with issues that were coming up and tweaked along the way until now you have something that Probably works, but like you said, is continuing to evolve. Originally, and for a long time, there was a certain group of people that included Ina Mae Gaskin and Stephen Gaskin and some other uh, inner circle friends like that. They would make the decisions until basically <clears throat> the people wanted a different form of government. Mm -hmm. And now it's more democratic rather than autonomous rule. And uh, they were great spiritual leaders and not great economic leaders. Mm. So we tweaked it and changed it so that we didn't lose the land, could pay our bills, and uh, move forward with a, a due system. And that's been in place for 30-something years. Oh, okay. And the board of directors, for all that time, has been an elected position. There's seven board members. And, uh, and you're been, one of them. I'm one of them. And I've been on the board for seven years, the last seven years. I also must say that during this changeover t period that I, we've been talking about, a lot of people left the farm, including myself. We moved to Florida. Then 
as I worked and my kids grew up and when I retired I went back to the farm so I've been back now for about eight years and I was there for originally 12 or 13 years so I've got about 21 years in two different stints right. at the farm. Wow. So, so you are pretty well steeped in the farm. You know the history. I'm steeped you know in the, the farm. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because my wife said, oh, you're going to go back there and get involved and everything. And I said, no, I just want to retire and have a happy life in the woods with my friends. <laughs> and then I got invited to this and invited to that and then elected to this and elected to that. So all the time I had to ask my wife permission. Is it okay if I run for the board? But one thing led to another. So yes, I've been on the board for a number of years. Nice. I remember, because this isn't my first time interviewing you about this, and, and I it, obviously I'm fascinated by it, which is why I wanted to do it again. But I remember you telling me the way that it's the way that it works now, if I remember correctly, basically anybody that's ever lived on the farm or was born on the farm or is a family of a, a member of the farm is always welcome there. It's always their home. Is that correct? That's more or less correct. But if you're gone for a while, which I was gone for a number of years, you do have to go through a re-entry process, which I went through and it was easy slide for me to slide on in, you know, because I'd been around the block, I'd been involved in the farm and I knew the ropes and... And you knew people, so I it, knew it was people easy to there. reintegrate back into the community. Yes. I also seem to remember you telling me that if somebody wanted to come and they wanted to join the farm, if they wanted to become a part of that community, it's not like somebody can just move in. What they would have to do is, if I'm, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, they would have to come and and be there for a while, six months or however long, and really start to make themselves a part of the community and make friends so that at some point a, a vote could be made as to whether or not we're going to welcome this person into the community on more of a full-time basis. Is that accurate? Yes, there's a membership committee. And if you've never lived on the farm and you come and experience the farm and want to give it a try, we welcome you. No questions asked. The, one of the requirements is to experience the farm before you make a decision, before you make a financial investment, because lots of people on first take love the farm, but they need to spend the winter there. They need yeah. to spend the summer there. They need to get to know people. And a common refrain is, well, I didn't know that or nobody told me that because so many of the things of the farm are vibes, how you vibe with people, and how you get along with people, and how you communicate, and how you can become part of the community, because it still is and remains a spiritual community. Now, what do you mean by spiritual? Well, that's up for grabs. But you want someone that's going to come in and not interrupt the harmony of the group, that they're going to contribute to the harmony of, of the community rather than... That, that is so, but more even besides that, we want you to feel like this is a place for you, and that's something that takes time. Mm -hmm. We don't want you to invest and then feel like, I wish I never made this decision. So the minimum time is six months, 
and you can be a resident for six months, then you can run for temporary membership, voting rights, and all of that. And then at some point, you run for full membership, and yes, there's a vote. 75% of the voting members have to vote a new member in. Okay, so, so that's the process of becoming... That's the process. It usually takes more or less a year <laughs> if you've never lived there before. Okay. Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember correctly, you said when, when somebody is ready to build on the farm, that the land is made available to them, they have their, their dues to pay, but the land is made available to them and they can build whatever they want on that land. But if they leave, that building belongs to the farm because it's not like they're gonna sell it to somebody outside of the farm. Okay, that's uh, an important question and one that comes up all the time. Yes, you get given the land. You can pick out a site and you could request it and it goes through channels and you get that site and you build a house. But the house is not owned by you because the land is held in a trust. Think about like a trust fund so that everybody owns the 4,000 acres you can't take the land with you. Another governing factor is because it's a land trust, you can't get a loan from the bank to build something because they can't repossess the house there. It's owned by the community. So the, so the trust is the bank. <laughs> but you the can the bank. sell the equity in your house. If you decide to leave, you, ha you can sell it and recoup your money but you have to sell it to somebody who's a member. Right, okay. So that way it kind of closes the circle. Not a lot, a lot of places turn over, but some do. And you have different kinds of buildings and houses on the property, right? Yes, well originally it was all school buses. And you still have some on the property. And there's, uh, I don't think anybody lives in a school bus anymore. But the and buses the, are still there. There's some buses still there. They're used more for storage now. And there's some old-time houses, and there's some new houses, because if you acquire money and inheritance or come back with money, kind of like I did, you can build what you want. And then, So if I wanted to, um, if I became a member of the community and went through the process and wanted to build a cob house, for example, or a straw bale home, um, or even a shipping container home if I was really going to make it look good, that would be allowed, if, as long as it's, okay, yeah, go ahead. All of those things that you'd mentioned exist as homes on the farm. That's what I wanted to know. <laughs> awesome, great. Straw bale houses, trailers, uh, container houses, um, all kinds of alternative lifestyle, or a traditional framed house. Right, I've, seen, I've seen all of them. I've yeah. seen the, I don't remember seeing the um, cob house and straw bale. I'll have to look for that next time if I'm lucky enough to go back. Yeah. Another time. This podcast is brought to you by Empath Yoga. The 200-hour Empath Yoga lifestyle training is for those who want to teach yoga or simply make yoga a more integral part of their daily lives. Learn more at empathyoga.com. Another thing that I love that's fascinating to me is I love that there's these businesses that are being run there, but that are also about kind of raising consciousness and educating people. So there's an eco-village, right? And 
There is. Eco Village has a huge addition that's Strawbell. <laughs> nice. But I'm going to have to go to that training. <laughs> I've done a Cobb House training and um, I've, con and I've been to Earthship, the Earthship's community in Taos, New Mexico, where they build with recycled tires and cans and, mm -hmm. and basically slip, which is a kind of a version of Cobb. But I have not yet experienced building with straw bale, so I may have to go there. For, let me say you're always welcome at the farm. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. And yes, the Eco Village, people come from really all over the country, and they have small attended classes to learn about building cob houses or bamboo stuff or alternative lifestyles. And, uh, permaculture. It, permaculture. That's a hot one at the Eco yeah. Village. Yeah. So all of those things, there's classes and you can come to the farm for the summer. They put you up at the Eco Village and you attend the classes. Mm. So that's, Eco, that's enticing. <laughs> and, Eco Village is one of those places. Right. That's like a back door to the farm. People come for that. And they're there for the summer. And then they learn about the farm. And they and learn about the farm. And there's more than a few people who decide to stay on. Yeah, that makes sense. I could, I could yeah. see that. When I do my yoga teacher trainings, we rent a basically a big house. And we do the communal living for about two weeks where we're all preparing meals together. And we're, we do yoga together every morning. Mm. And, and everybody loves living like that. At the end of two weeks... We're always, without fail, every single time, we're always talking about living in a sustainable community, living in a, a community environment where everyone's making a contribution. And so I always think back to the farm because that's a big version of that where it's, it's working, it's happening. And what I also love is in addition to the Eco Village, you've, isn't there also a publishing company? There's a book publishing company, there's a solar electronics company, and there's currently huge banks of solar panels on the farm. And they let me go back to the book company. Yeah. The book company uh, once printed, and there's some authors on the farm who have their stuff like distributed, Ina May, like right? Ina May and Spiritual Midwifery is a huge book that's been selling for decades. And it was published there on the farm. Written and published on the farm about births that happened on the farm. Nice. So, uh, and the book publishing company publishes health care books, vegetarian books, vegan books, and Indian books. So, they, they have a specialty knack, mm -hmm. and their distribution is several hundred titles that nice. they... I currently work part-time at the book company. Nice. So That's where uh, I need to go when I want to publish my next book. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's geared for alternate food lifestyles. That's the main focus. Tempe books, veggie cookbooks, mm -hmm. health cookbooks like that. And that's the kind of uh, vein <laughs> that, that that is distributed and they have authors that now write those books all over the country and come to the farm for, dis for distribution. to have their titles distributed. Nice. Okay, so you touched on the solar panels. And 
I remember being there and seeing this unbelievable collection of solar panels. And I seem to remember you saying that you that the solar panels on the farm produce more than enough electricity for everyone on the farm and that some of it actually goes back it is <coughs> is offered to the local municipality is that Yeah, correct? well actually the farm doesn't use any of the electric in a quirk like this cuz we're within the Tennessee Valley Authority electric system and we sell to the grid at a higher rate than we get charged so it behooves us money wise to sell to the grid because we pay less wow. for TVA money. So you're creating all this power, selling it to the grid and saving money. You're making money and saving money all at the same time. All at the same time. That's brilliant. So, uh, and we originally got started in the solar panel business during the Obama era when there was funding for projects like that. In our current political situation, that no longer exists. Right, right. Sadly. Sadly. That's yeah. right. So that's... And solar electronics, you can order things from solar electronics, for example, solar Geiger counters. And you could know if there's radiation in your neighborhood, in your house, or by a power company or and people in Europe order these over the years have ordered them by the thousands including places like when in Japan there was a meltdown thousands upon thousands of Geiger counters were shipped out solar Geiger counters were shipped to Japan from the farm from the farm wow. and they're built assembled and shipped upon order and other products as well. And both of those, the book company and Soul Electronics, employs members of the farm. Nice. So. And the Eco Village? The Eco Village has some employment. The people who run it have a salary. Mm -hmm. But the book company is a lot bigger and Soul Electronics is bigger. Yeah. So, so more people work there. And... There's also a school, right, for the, the children that live on the property. There's a solar school that was once old buildings in different towns that the construction company I mentioned earlier would go there and tear these brick buildings down and we'd bring the big bricks back to the farm and we built a solar school. You know, it has solar implications and heated it in the winter by the solar arrays and uh so this is a school for kids for school-aged children school-aged children and it's completely run by solar um no there's in the winter in the dead of winter there's also a wood furnace system ah. but by and large it's run by solar supplemented by wood furnaces nice <laughs> nice okay so can you tell me about Plenty? I remember us talking about that at one point. Plenty. Plenty was a organization, nonprofit organization, formed by the farm, and it was relief projects. And the original farm, from the beginning till this day, Plenty goes to places 
that have been devastated one way or another. Like at one point you went to Haiti, right? One point we went to Haiti and I must say, I was on a plenty project and lived two years in the Caribbean islands and the project was to learn how to teach the local farmers how to make tofu by growing soybeans and making tofu in a rural village setting in the jungle. And that was a project that me and my family and some others and developed that for a couple of years. So so Plenty primarily was about going and teaching people in communities that had been devastated or were in, under some sort of hardship how to thrive again by by planting and growing. Um, that was one aspect. Oh, that was one aspect. And there was medical aspects. We've sent teams of medical personnel and fundraised equipment. And by the way, Plenty is registered as in the, with the United Nations and could go into foreign countries. And that helps ease us into these devastated areas. We go in behind hurricanes. The current Plenty Project is supporting the Indians over the oil lines in the north. Mm. So we support them financially and go there and help supply them with clothes and lawyers and all the resources of the farm are marshaled to help different situations that the farm deems important. Yeah. Oh, well. So it could be medical, it could be vegetarian food, Mm -hmm. it could be political relief, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, worthwhile projects. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I just love, I love the farm. I love hearing about the history and how it's evolved and what it is and what it does. So if somebody wanted to experience the farm, if they wanted to come and get on property and just experience what it is and familiarize themselves with it, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, there is a system for that. It's called farm experience. (laughs) It's funny because the first road on the farm is called first road. The second road is called second road. (laughs) No. Experience the farm is called farm experience. And you could come for a week and uh, we put you up in a dorm or private rooms. There's bed and breakfast on the farm. And uh, you experience how we live and what we do during the work days and organic gardening or, and all those kind of things and experience life on the farm for a week. And that's one way. Another way is to know somebody like you guys mm-hmm. and just come and hang out. Right, <laughs> right, right. We've been lucky enough to do that uh, two or three times. We, and we've always come for Ragweed. Can we talk about Ragweed? Yeah, Ragweed is another interesting story. <laughs> and I will say uh, one of the things, besides weapons, you cannot bring drugs to the farm. And how you interpret drugs is one thing, because you may look at marijuana as something other than a drug, right. and that would be a personal choice. Right. But back in the old days, when other communities were experienced, like Jonestown, the farm caught a lot of heat over stuff like that. Drug abuse on other communes, but there was never drugs heroin, cocaine, you get all those kind of drugs 
you must leave. Mm. You can't come to the farm and you can't have those kind of things on the farm. Marijuana is looked at differently and it's a personal choice yeah. of your, some people may partake in it and some people may not, mm -hmm. but it has been a staple of the spirituality of the farm. We've went to court over it, but we other communities were experiencing heat from the law. Getting like mean, raided, right? Getting raided. So they thought they would raid the farm and they did raid the farm. And you might picture the helicopters coming in in Vietnam, landing on the farm, uh, SWAT teams, you know, armed, raiding the farm. And they raided this farm at sunrise. We offered them breakfast and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you welcomed them you were, in. Yeah, come on, you want to search us? You want to see what's going on here? Come in. <laughs> Sit down with us. We'll show you who we are and tell you what we do. Yeah. And they found nothing. And we could have sued them. But we asked, what we asked in exchange was a public apology. You apologize for this raid and we'll call it even. Nice. So now there's, you know, we could elect the county mayor. We could elect the sheriff. But the standing unwritten rule was, we won't tread on your lawn if you don't tread on our lawn. So Because of the power and the size of the farm, you could influence we the, could, that local we government. We could have politically controlled the county, but we didn't want that. Right. We... That would just bring us trouble. Right. And we found a way to meld in with the neighbors, and our neighbors right. love us. Nice. We would take care of the elders and the sick in, the, in our neighbors, and our neighbors began to know us and love us. And mm. we're friends with their children to this day. So you started a uh, an annual ragweed festival, which is that was started as a okay. So they came in this raid mm -hmm. because their helicopter photos and reconnaissance was looked like rows of marijuana plants, but what it actually was was rows of watermelons that we never maybe a five acre watermelon patch that we didn't weed and ragweed grew up in the rows. So when they landed, it was ragweed and not the marijuana <laughs> farm and fields that they suspected. So that became the annual our, ragweed our festival. annual celebration. It's the day, and we do it on the 4th of July. It was like our independence from mm -hmm. pressure of the politics. And uh, to this day, ragweed is celebrated, and it's... One of the main requirements of coming to Ragweed is that you had to live on the farm. Mm -hmm. And if you lived on the farm anytime, no longer lived there, or lived there for a short time, you were welcome back for Ragweed. And a lot of people come back just for a lot Ragweed, of people, right? Hundreds of people come yeah. back. It's like the farm reunion. Yeah. Some people don't come back from years, some pe for years. Some people come back intermittently. Some people come back every Ragweed. Mm. And it's a celebration of music and the existence that we've made it this far. 
Yeah. And that's that was my experience. I was lucky enough to be there for ragweed, like I said, two or three years in a row, and it's amazing. I have a rock and roll band on the farm. And how I got to know Erica and Brian is when I lived in Tallahassee, they helped me learn to play guitar and learned the Grateful Dead songs and we became friends. And that's how they got invited to Ragweed to play. In yep, so Kevin and Brian. Kevin and Brian. Nice. So they got invited to come to Ragweed as a guest. Yeah, so some people may not know that Brian's my boyfriend, but yeah, so that's, so that's how I was lucky enough. I got to tag along. <laughs> yeah, so I would put in a special request because they were friends. They were, in, they were coming to play music and give, share their gifts and experience mm. ragweed and the sharing that we do there. And uh, they've been a co- back a couple of times. Yeah. So that's how those guys got introduced to the farm. And that, yeah, and that's how I met you and, and got to experience it. And it's always amazing. I always love to drive around the farm and see the old school buses and the different buildings and the eco-village and the school and... The store. And the store. I love the store. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about my grandkids who are nine. They love it on the farm because it's safe. They have bicycles on the farm. They just announced... I'm going to the farm, and they hop on their bicycles and take off because I know everybody there, and everybody's looking out for the children. Right. They go to the store, and the people at the store know they're my grandchildren. They get something from the store, put it on the counter. They can't even see up to the counter, and they say, charge it. (laughs) Nice. So I said, well, one item at a time. Yeah. So that's how my grandchildren experience the farm. We always... Make a list after every visit of the animals they saw. Deer, snakes, turtles, rabbits, possums, and things that children don't always experience, say, in Orlando. Right, right. Or Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and the creeks. And, uh, and that swimming hole is amazing. And a huge swimming hole that we designed and built ourselves. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, great. That was made by us. Oh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. Every time I talk with you, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this conversation because, uh, because sustainable living and community living, it's kind of my dream of where I, where I want to head with this. This is definitely something that I'm seeing. And who knows if we'll, Brian and I talk every now and then about maybe we should go spend some time at the farm. <laughs> well, the only way to really experience the fabric of the farm is to come for an extended visit. Right. I mean, a week Six would be good, a, a month would be good, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever your plans and jobs could allow. Mm-hmm. But uh, you guys, and you've made your own friends on the farm. Yeah. Brian and Kevin are friends with my friends. Mm-hmm. And they always ask for you guys. Are these are those guys coming back this ragweed? Yeah. And, and that's I coming say, up in like a month. <laughs> ragweed's coming up. And my friends won't allow... Because you could pay for bed and breakfast and pay for room. But my friends won't let Kevin and Brian right. pay any money. Right, They're right. just friends of the farm. And they feed them, put them up. Yeah. And they're playing for the farm and giving their knowledge and experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in music. And in return, they're not charged. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. I... 
I want just want to thank you again for letting me interview you again um, about the farm. I know there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be fascinated by this conversation and everything that we have to share. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Well, there's one thing I would like to say that I say to anybody that I talk to about the farm. Everyone is originally enamored by the farm, and they love it. And that's the experience and energy that you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. And that exists there more so than anywhere I've ever experienced. But like any other town or village, there's also speed bumps or things to work out. So it's not a kind of nirvana place that's all peaches and cream. Right. You know, there's issues. Like anything in life. Anything in life. And you have to cooperate work it out and that's another tenant of the farm speak your mind work it out and come to an agreement and move on not to what i call gunny sack things for weeks months and years right that might you might be upset with your neighbor right you know for a long time right like you know, you know get, get past things move on yeah, find a healthy that, way to that's how the farm functions yeah that's the real heart of the farm to work things out. Not that there's not problems. There is problems. Right. There is issues. But those to, are opportunities, right? I mean, they're opportunities Opportunity to work it out. Yeah. And if you don't work it out, then who's the loser? Right. You are. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So like anything else, I mean, it's a microcosm for life. You, you know, it's not like, like you said, it's, it's not a nirvana where you go and it's just this magical place where everything is peaches and cream, it's, there's no light without shadow and that it's going to follow you wherever you go. But it sounds like at the farm, there's a structure and there's a loving and supportive community and everyone's really intending to do their absolute best to support the community as a whole. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, in this interview, I would also say we're skimming the surface of the farm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. It could take days and weeks of discussion to get down... To the you know to understand the fabric of the farm. Yeah. And uh, you know the main thing is to work it out. Yeah. Be com- try to be compassionate. It's not always compassionate. Right. The goal right. is to try. Right. And go from there. If you try and do the best you can, you're welcome at the farm. Nice, nice. Thank you so much, Pat. Once again, Pat O'Connor, for letting me interview you about the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. And um, I'll put some information in the show notes if you want to know where to go to learn more about the farm, the eco-village, any of the things that we talked about. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, Let me know by giving me a five-star rating and help our ranking so we can reach more people who might be inspired by our message. Until next time, remember, our lives are a product of the choices that we make. Choose wisely.